You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Stephen Starr reports from Istanbul on the extraordinary reach of Recep Erdogan's crackdown on state of emergency. Tens of thousands under arrest. Now he's rounding up journalists and even the Religious Affairs Directorate has removed a total of a thousand staff today. Derek Scali, our Berlin correspondent, talks to me about the political and social reverberations from the four violent attacks in Bavaria over the last week. Is Angela Merkel able to stand up to the new pressures on her? And Isabel Gorst, our correspondent in Moscow, looks at how Vladimir Putin stands with his own people. In Istanbul, and I admit to hesitating to joke about this, still at liberty, Stephen Starr, the Erdogan regime is rounding up journalists. Have they threatened the international press yet? Not yet, not directly, not yet, but there have been incidents of uh, physical assaults against some foreign journalists. You know, the scene in Taksim Square, which uh, is now a centre of uh, pro-Erdogan uh, fervour, I guess you could say, uh, is 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 uh, a lot of how can we say uh, support Islamic chanting, um, debt to America type of chants, and a couple of Western uh, journalists, as I say, were assaulted there at the weekend. Now, what Erdogan has asked is for his supporters and for all Turks to come out into the streets and into the squares of towns and cities around the country, uh, partly because it seems he's taking advantage of the failure of this coup of this coup. And also, in order to occupy the, the, the squares and the important centres of towns and cities, uh, in order for any other potential opposition to to be kept away, of course, you know, a central reason for the failure of the coup on July 15th was that uh, the uh, coup plotters could not get proper control of the squares. They were held up in traffic at the Bosphorus Bridge and the the, the two Bosphorus two bridges that divide Istanbul's Bosphorus Bridge, a Taksim Square, there was about 15 soldiers left there uh, to, to man uh, what is essentially an iconic uh, place in, in, in Istanbul. So we're, we're still standing, but uh, what's going to happen in, in the coming days and weeks is, is a different story. We're not sure. Can you get a sense of the mood of, of people? Are these genuine demonstrations, and do they represent really widespread support for Erdogan? To qualify my answer, I suppose, uh, there is huge support from Erdogan at the moment. You will always have opposition to Erdogan and to his Islamist uh, tendencies among secular Turks who make up a small percentage, but, you know, about the CHP uh, party, which is the leading Republican opposition party, always gets around 25% of the, of the votes at election time, and also the Kurds. So there are two cleavages within Turkish society that Erdogan will find very difficult to bring around. Uh, for everybody else, uh, it seems that people are behind him. Um, there's, you know, the, there's a number of different, I guess, fall guys for Erdogan at the moment. They're looking at, you know, there's been calls by Turkish officials for the Herak Fatulagulan to be extradited to Turkey. And of course, from, Washington, from America, where he's, where he's himself imposed exile in uh, Pennsylvania, of course, the Americans are, are looking for, you know, specific... Uh, uh, reasons and evidence for his involvement in that. Now, this lights up Erdogan supporters. They think that America is involved and in, was involved in, in the coup, and all kinds of, you know, rumors have been spiraling around, suggesting that's the case. What's interesting working as a journalist here is that I've and I've also worked in Syria for many years is that getting people to talk uh, is extremely difficult. Nobody wants to talk about uh, anything at all. Uh, it's 
people are afraid. You know, obviously there's been 60,000 or so people arrested uh, in this in this uh, post-coup purge. And uh, getting a sense from people on the record and, and in person about what they think about what's happening is, is proving very difficult indeed. I saw um, opinion polling suggesting that two-thirds of people uh, believe uh, that Fethullah Gulam is behind uh, the coup and that this is something that has always played very well in Turkey. It's a place where, where uh, conspiracy theories go down uh, extremely well. But do you... Do you have a sense from your experience that this is a genuine coup uh, by Gulen? Do you believe the evidence that you've seen that, that he is behind it? And have any of those who, who were arrested actually come forward and said, yeah, he, he was? Well, you know, if there was evidence there to, to view and to study and to research, they'd be better able to give you an answer. But there's been very little evidence of, this, of that being the case. There has been a, a release of a transcript by a number of the leaders of the of the attempted coup. Uh, in nowhere do they mention any relationship with uh, with Fatullah Gulen uh, uh, whatsoever. Uh, you know what they say is that they are they what they call they call this group that they use on WhatsApp. Uh, they use the first line of Staffan Kemal Ataturk's famous quote: "Peace at home." Now Ataturk, of course, was the secular founder of Turkey. Uh, was not an Islamist, uh, was not conservative, uh, would have had little or no time for uh, people who support um, Fethullah Gulen in its more in a characterization, I guess. So, you know, if we had some evidence to suggest that was the case, that would be, you know, you, we could make a better assessment of that. Uh, that hasn't emerged. It's not to say it won't emerge. It's not to say that some of the people who have been detained might, in fact, uh, say that uh, Gulen had some involvement in this. But, you know, if you, if you look back in the, the hours after the attempted coup, uh, Gulen invited the journalists into his home in Pennsylvania, which is something that he very, very rarely does, in order to say that, you know, that he had no involvement whatsoever in this. Now, we need to qualify this by saying also that, you know, Turkey has a history of coups and attempted coups, and in the past he has expressed support uh, for those. Um, but, you know, because the, the media here, the independent media, has been under such restrictions, they've been closed down, uh, they have been gutted. You have uh, over 40 journalists uh, arrested over the last couple of days. Some of them have been hunted down uh, under boats. They've been on holidays in the south. And uh, you, you've seen uh, soldiers attempt to border boats in, in search of these journalists. Um, you know, these people are the people who would normally pick up the baton, do the research and figure out, uh, what's happening and who's responsible. But these people are now locked up in jail or are on the run, essentially. So it's really difficult to, to, to find out. Now, there are allegations uh, that uh, the, of torture uh, of uh, prisoners uh, in the international press and through organisations like Amnesty. Is any of this being reported in, in uh, Turkey? And is there any independent press functioning at all? Very little, you know. And any remains of, of, of independent press are essentially towing this line that, that Gulen is responsible for, for the, uh, the attempted coup. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the international press for, for focusing on this and for not essentially putting more uh, uh, emphasis on, on Gulen's responsi- alleged responsibility for the attempted coup. You know, as I say, we haven't seen any evidence of this as yet. So, you know, either it's being ignored or traditional avenues of criticism for uh, criticism of the, of the government are on, on side with this uh, this rhetoric that Gulen is responsible. Of course, one of the, the major uh, traditional, I guess, independent or opposition publications, Hurriyet, 
newspaper was subjected to an attack, I guess, by the uh, the pro-coup soldiers on the night of, of the 15th of July. So, you know, I guess editorially speaking, they would very much be against uh, the, the attempted coup. Uh, now, again, they, they haven't offered any evidence that who has the responsibility for this. But when you have soldiers coming through your newspaper's uh, offices uh, at night time, trying to take control of the newspaper, you're going to, it's likely that you're going to be very critical of, uh, of the coup. No matter who was involved. Now, the scope of the roundup, as you say, and the sackings are now totaling something like 60,000, focused on the state apparatus. Uh, a third of, of Turkey's uh, serving generals have been detained. Um, I, I saw this morning that the religious uh, ministry has sacked a huge number of, of, of its officials. Can the state continue to function with the purge of this size? This is something that will bear itself out over a long time, I suspect. You know, uh, I was speaking to some opposition politicians this morning, and they're saying that the students who would formerly have been enrolled in uh, Gulenist uh, schools are now have to re-enroll in private, in, in state uh, schools. Now, what kind of education they're going to get and what type of education every other student uh, across universities across secondary schools and other institutions, you know, the actual cost in intellectual uh, capability, I guess, is going to be substantial because these are people who have worked in their current roles for often for decades. Uh, The question is, who's going to be replaced? You know, I passed through Istanbul Airport uh, last week. And for the most part, the guys you see bearing weapons, police and soldiers, seem to be in, you know, off, they could be in their, in their teens or their early 20s. Uh, so, you know, obviously it seems to be the case, at least, that they're there because they are loyal to Erdogan. But the quality of, of, what, they, of what they provide, and this goes from across you know, all the way from the security forces to education to other aspects of the civil service, there was the consequences of that we won't know, obviously, for, for years to come, but it certainly seems that uh, it's going to have a negative effect on uh, Turkey standing in, in the international world and across a number of uh, development indicators. It seems, from here anyway, particularly remarkable uh, that uh, the uh, Erdogan um, authorities had have clearly a pre-prepared list which runs to 60,000, 70,000 uh, people on it. Uh, and... Were we aware beforehand that there was such a list in in preparation? There wasn't, but this goes back to December 2013 when um, members of the judiciary and the police who were thought thought to have been loyal to Gulen uh, rounded up a number of uh, Erdogan supporters, including family members, and that was a shock to Erdogan and his government the shock to the system. So in the intervening period, we're talking two and a half years, uh, it's possible that lists could have been put together. But, you know, as you say, 60,000 people, you know, within, I guess, a week, you know, putting together that number of people, uh, you know, it, it boggles the mind, you know, where do you come up with these, uh, these names, uh, their background details, uh, you know, on what... Uh, and what evidence are they involved in, in, in the Gulen movements? You know, is it because they went to Gulen school simply, or is it because they were actively involved 
uh, with Gulen at the highest levels. Uh, how can they, you know, how could they notice in, in the first place? And as I say, uh, some of the opposition people I've been speaking to have been asking the same questions, saying that we can't, you know, paint uh, with the same brush people, the officers involved in, in carrying out the attempted coup, and people who simply. Uh, you know, enrolled in, in Gulenist schools or universities or institutions. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about the pressure that's coming on Erdogan from, from his uh, erstwhile allies in the, in the, the West, uh, the US and the European Union, both of whom badly need his support, both for dealing with the migrant crisis, but also for dealing with the war against ISIS um, in, in Syria. He's gambled that they're not going to push him too hard, that they're going to be making noises. But are there, are there any signs that that pressure is having some effect on, on the administration? Well, you know, being inside Turkey, you get a sense for just how it's how much support he has. And as I say, you go to the squares of any town around the country or you look at any of the newspapers or, or TV, and what you hear is that Erdogan is right, Erdogan has the support of the country. So there's something of an echo chamber inside, inside Turkey. Uh, what happens internationally and what people say internationally is of, is of, of much less uh, consequence to him. You know, for a while now, he's been surrounded by only yes-men and people who you know, essentially carry out uh, exactly what he wants to do. Um, what Turkey stands to lose is, is a question. And, um, and there's been talks of, you know, Erdogan recently reported this morning that Erdogan has been asked, you know, has been asking where is the money that uh, Europe was to hand over in terms of supporting uh, the 2.7 million Syrian refugees here. So he's able to whip up this anti-Western, anti, uh, particularly anti-American feeling because he has a number of, of cards in his hands that he can still still play. Uh, but you know, I don't, it doesn't seem to be the case that he's listening to any criticism uh, internally or internationally at all. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and you want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Germany has been ramping up security in the wake of four attacks in the last week, one directly linked to IS. Bavaria has been the focus. Derek Scanny, how rattled are people? Well, people are basically, I'm, I'm here in the centre of Munich and I was talking to people here in a beer garden and the same question keeps coming up. They're saying, how much how afraid or how concerned should one be and how much concern is just uh, just overreacting. And that seems to be the issue that people are, are concerned about. How concerned should they be? Nobody seems to be able to tell them. And this sense of insecurity, I think, is one of the, the key weapons that IS uses in its in its war against the West. So, you know, people are, aren't sure whether they're being silly to be overreacting um, or whether they are right to be concerned. Bavaria, I mean, it's a very prosperous, it's a very peaceful, it's a place people in Germany all say they would love to live. So IS struck very cleverly at the most secure, the most prosperous place in Germany. And if the Bavarians were a very strong sense of self, if they're rattled, you can pretty much be sure the rest of Germany is probably rattled as well. And it's, but it's quite confusing, isn't it, in the sense that IS struck in, in, in particularly in, in one case, but the three, three other cases are, are, are not linked, as far as we know, directly to IS. Well, that's exactly the that's the issue that politicians are having a very a very great difficulty explaining to people that there is only one thing, but unfortunately, in the other cases, there are 
uh, asylum seekers, in one case a failed asylum seeker, and two um, refugees. So, um, of course, we journalists know the difficulty of explaining to people the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker, and many people uh, on the extreme right of Germany have spent the last year muddying the waters, insinuating that um, a refugee is a potential um, um, suicide bomber. And, um, and a year ago, they said, the extreme right in Germany, they said, this is, uh, Frau Merkel is not just importing people in need of help, she's importing, um, she's importing intolerance and she's importing jihadist violence. And they now are feeling that they were right and everyone else was wrong and they should have listened to them a year ago and we wouldn't have this problem. But of course, the German government has also explained, look, these people who were involved, even the people who was the man behind the, uh, the bombing in Ansbach, he was in Germany two years ago, uh, long before Frau Merkel opened up the borders last year. So the notion that last year's wave, uh, the surge of one million asylum seekers to Germany somehow brought in this wave of IS violence is also um, not uh, backed up by facts. But the issue, of course, is are people listening to facts at the moment or are they just insecure and listening to people who are giving them easy answers in a complex situation? The famous expression, if you're explaining, you're losing. The German government is explaining an awful lot, but whether people are listening, that's another matter. What do we know about Mohammed D and, and his IS links? Well, we know that he came to Germany two years ago and that a year ago he was told to leave again, but he stayed. Um, and he, entered, um, he entered Europe via Bulgaria and he headed on to Austria and then two years ago ended up in Bavaria. And um, attempts to get him out of the country last year failed because um, a doctor and a lawyer acting for him pointed out that he had a knee injury that hadn't been dealt with in, um, in Bulgaria. And uh, because of this, he needed treatment. He couldn't leave. And when that was dealt with, he tried to kill himself twice by slashing himself superficially on the arms. And he said that I can't go back. They will kill me in Syria if I do. He claimed his family home was hit by um, by missiles. He comes from Aleppo. And he said his parents were in, in, in prison for political agitation against IS. He said his wife and children were killed by a missile strike. But of course, we now, uh, people in Germany are now terrified that, of course, this entire asylum procedure is based on people telling the truth, that people are fleeing from violence, are fleeing from, from IS. And if people just decide to make things up, some people are now wondering here, well, what's to stop anyone being smuggled in? And of course, that's the Achilles heel of the asylum procedure, that often you just have to take a lot of what people are saying at face value. And if IS or somebody else chooses to smuggle somebody in with a made-up story, how can an asylum official in Germany know the difference? But is that clear, that he was that it, this was a made-up story? Or, or did he become an IS supporter from his experience in Germany? Well, he seems to have been, in the video he left behind before the attack, um, he seems to have been renewing his vows to IS as opposed to sort of joining up just before he goes out and commits uh, an atrocity in the name of IS in Würzburg and in many other cases the videos are sort of their their sign up video um, he seems to have been a member of IS before uh, for some time before we don't know whether it was uh, before he left Syria whether it was on his journey to Europe or whether it was in Germany that he was um, snagged by IS but people are worried that if IS chose, this is always the worry, uh, that if, pe if IS chose to smuggle somebody into Europe with a, with a story, with a shaggy dog story, how would you be able to tell the difference? And, of course, this, if this was the case, it would only be in a tiny, tiny, tiny number of the one million people who came, but one or two bad apples are enough to poison the, the entire um, public mood here, and that's what the politicians here are working against. Well, what can the government do realistically from a security point of view? 
Well, from a security point of view, I'm in I'm in uh, Munich, and they're already discussing the Oktoberfest. They're building the, this massive beer festival here. They're building the tents as we speak. And um, Munich was struck. One of its most serious uh, terror attacks was in 1980 when somebody just set off a bomb in the Oktoberfest. And already they're saying we need to renew our um, we need to look again at security measures anywhere people gather, and particularly when drink is involved, um, people have bags and so on. Uh, that would be a, a threat. And at airports, I just um, I was when I was at Munich Airport, I saw a huge number of people there. But um, the video that this man left behind, Mohammed Dalil, he said the next attack in Germany is going to be a car bomb. How do you prevent a car bomb? The answer is you can't. And that's the other message, as well as trying to uh, trying to point out that not all asylum seekers are potential IS terrorists. The German government is trying to point out that, yes, there is no perfect security. We are doing our best, but we now have to deal with a new reality. So there is no perfect security. And um, so people are here wondering now, after four attacks in one week, um, what's next? Where will it be and who will it strike? And of course, the political fallout uh, has, has begun immediately. And initially, it's questions about failure to anticipate, which may not be particularly reasonable. But there's also questions longer-term questions about migrant strategy, including from the left. Um, Die Linke has criticised uh, Merkel's um, immigra- immigrant strategy, and presumably the AFD uh, will make uh, great hay out of this. Oh, this is it. The AFD couldn't believe their luck yesterday when the Linke said that Merkel had underestimated the challenge ahead with her sort of, we can manage this claim of a year ago. Um, and to have the left and the hard left uh, saying this, of course, is a godsend for the hard right because they said, well, you know, they, they're saying this now, but we said a year ago. Um, and what you need to remember is this election season is kicking off. In September, we have two state elections in Berlin and the Mecklenburg-Vorpommern to the northeast. And they're not hugely important, but the politicians there, you can already see in their public remarks this week, are starting to jostle over who can be more law and order than the other. And then next year, uh, starting in May, we have a massive state election in North Rhine-Westphalia in the West. One in five Germans live there, so you can be very sure that law and order and security will play a role there. And that's the role into uh, the federal election next year in, um, in September. So already you're starting to see signs of German politicians entering election mode with their remarks. And of course, when politicians enter election mode, long-term thinking and um, sensible thinking is, and strategic thinking is not necessarily uppermost in their mind. Thank you very much, Derek. You're listening to the Irish Times. In the last five years, there's been a remarkable rise of what might be called the International Vladimir Putin Fan Club. Explicit admirers range from Donald Trump, Recep Erdogan, Kaczynski in Poland, Orban in Hungary, Le Pen in France, her party is receiving large loans from Russia, Farage, and even Xi Jinping. Russia and China have a new warmth to their relationship that hasn't been seen for years. He's, quote, what you call a leader, unquote, according to Rudy Giuliani, after Russia invaded the Ukraine. Trump has delighted him with a threat not to uphold NATO Article 5 commitments. Brexit vote has delighted him too. But friction with the West has risen at the same time, in Ukraine, in Syria, in the Baltics. And Putin has been deeply embarrassed by the Olympics drug scandal. All of this feeds a culture of grievance, promoting a sense of entitlement and encirclement which he plays on at home. He rails against what he calls the unipolar world. Isabel Gorst, how stands he at home? Well, extraordinary thing is that Vladimir Putin is extremely popular in his own country in a diametrically opposite relationship that we have in the West, where he's very broadly demonised in mainstream media a lot, or in 
I think governments think that Putin is a Western governments, many leaders think he's a nightmare. Um, but in Russia, he's extremely popular and seen as somebody who's brought stability to the country and a certain measure of prosperity. But the economy is is in difficulty. The reliance of the Russians on, on oil, for example, and the fall of the price of oil has meant really serious strains on the Russian economy. Indeed, the economy for the last two years now has been seeing extreme strains, partly because of the fall in the price of oil, which earns most of Russia's foreign income, accounts for it, um, and also because the ruble collapsed in value, and there are Western sanctions, which make it very difficult for Russia to borrow money in the West. So this is a, this is a danger for Putin, that he may not be able to continue to deliver on the prosperity that he promised in the early years of his presidency, and he began in 2000. Um, but so far, I think he's managing to steady the boat by stepping up Russia's image as a resurgent power internationally. And and the fear of encirclement is is part of that story uh, to the Russian people. Rally behind me! I you know uh, Russia under threat, and they see him. They see him as a great leader. They see him as a great leader, and they they see the risk of a treacherous Western powers, mostly America, but certain European powers as well, seeking to invade or overthrow the regime or continue the string of coloured revolutions that there were in other Soviet, former Soviet countries and then the Arab Spring. The West is, is presented very broadly on state media in Russia as sort of cunning and conniving and trying to rock the boat in Russia. So that the message is put up with some sacrifices because the main thing is that we all stick together and we the Russian Federation remains strong. Do you get any sense, though, that within the administration that there are tensions at all in terms of, of the direction of economic policy? For example, are, are, there, are there pressures from the army which badly needs investment? Does he have a difficult time within his own government? I think there are always tensions within the Kremlin establishment and it's quite unclear what's going on a lot of the time. I think within the government itself, there's certainly a lib so-called liberal bloc, which isn't particularly liberal, but it's a lot more liberal than the hardline autocrats who want a state-controlled, want to roll back and have a more state-controlled economy and everything, all big, big resources in state hands. And there, a sort of debate does go on. I mean, even Dmitry Medvedev, who's the prime minister, is pictured as a sort of liberal compared to some tougher members of the establishment. And partly, I think Putin plays a balancing act, playing off hardliners against so-called liberals and trying to steer a middle course or just retain power that way. Um, um, but he and he also leans quite heavily, I think, on, on the oligarchy, on the on the billionaire uh, business people who whose ascent he has helped uh, and, and who he has protected. Yes, of course, he's He's done two things with the oligarchy. In the era before when Boris Yeltsin was in power, the oligarchs really ran the show. He's reined in their powers. He's taken the main oil resources back into state control. And the oligarchs, there are more oligarchs now, of course, because Russia's much richer. But they have to do what he says. That they, could, they keep their wealth, or most of it. But he's made it quite clear that they're answerable to him if they want to keep their wealth. I think there's a risk that the oligarchs must be very unhappy with economic policy at the moment because... They're investors, they're businessmen by nature, and it's not a particularly business-friendly regime anymore. Um, but I think they they realize who's boss in Russia, and they're not going to publicly rock the boat. 
Well, they have difficulty getting their money out of the country now, I gather. Mm. Moving Russia, money out of Russia has become more difficult. They've people have been advised to sell their foreign European homes and their yachts, not to be so public about their foreign holdings. And so they have to be very, very careful. They're under huge pressure from Putin to bring their money back home and invest in the development of their own country. And what about political uh, rights and civil society? I mean, is there something uh, happening on the ground there at all? Is, is, there, is, is there a democratic movement? Well, we have seen, particularly since 2012, when Putin got a third, won a third term in office, uh, a, a rise in increasingly repressive legislation against human rights and political freedoms. And the political opposition has largely gone underground we're coming up now for uh, parliamentary elections in September, and then next year we should have a pres presidential election coming up, or the year after. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether there is any really serious open debate um, about the political direction of the country. The signs are not very good. Ser any serious opponent of Putin who looks like he might become popular finds himself facing legal charges or facing threats, and it's becoming a scary place to oppose the establishment. And will there be opposition parties in the in the elections? There will be op opposition parties. Of course, a cynic will tell you that, that it's a sort of showcase opposition, it's a fake opposition, that they just only go so far. And, um, and I think that's what we're seeing now. The parliamentary elections will be a testing ground for how far he allows alternative voices to speak out. And in the meantime, the opposition, the different, the different characters and forces in the opposition are very divided about how to go forward, which doesn't help the case, of course. Now, he's less invested a lot of, of energy and political uh, capital in, in uh, siding with Assad in, in uh, Syria. What, what, is, what is he playing at there? And are the overtures the Americans are making uh, towards him about you know, greater military cooperation, are they realistic? I think he's, he's playing numerous games in Syria to do with Russia's national interests and also his own personal grip on power. I mean, the overthrow of Assad was something that Putin and the Kremlin could never accept because they are just against regime change. And they see the West, or they see America as a sponsor of regime change. And they're not going to overthrow publicly overthrow their allies, long-term allies, or, in, or stand by and let it happen. Uh, Russia also has strategic interests in Syria's Mediterranean power and his historic links with that country. I think it's an interesting area where we'll see how far Russia can cooperate with the US if it can cooperate at all in Syria, because the fact is that Western powers need Russia on board to find a lasting settlement in Syria if such a thing is possible at all. It means embracing the idea that Assad will go, mm. and he's not prepared to do that at the moment. No, but he's made hints that he'll support a transition, as long as he can be in as a transitional president, then they might accept that he, he's dismissed via an election. So there's, I think, I think Putin's left the door open for compromise in Syria. I, I don't know if he's really prepared to see it through. Certainly, he'd, if Assad goes, Putin will want to see that his own man comes in. And another of his international projects is this idea of a Eurasian alliance. Uh, what, what does that... Is that a, a, a European Union for the Eurasian uh, continent? It, one way of seeing it is just it's just a, 
it's a model of the European Union, but it's just including former Soviet countries, bringing them all back together as a trading block, and it's already it's already working that between Kazakhstan, Belarus, are already on board with Russia in this alliance. I think for Putin, it's also ideal. It's economic primarily to bring back trading ties lost when the Soviet Union fell apart. But it's also ideological to have a block that represents a new kind of values as he sees it and possibly an end to democracy as the sort of cool way to run the world. And I think he will want Eurasianism is a sort of key theme now in, in Russian thinking, and he'll want to draw other countries, possibly even Turkey, into the Eurasian Union, China, possibly even greater ties with the Indian subcontinent. It's a, It started off very quietly, but I think it could, with weaknesses now, strains in the EU appearing, Eurasianism could come up as a very important international theme. It's a rather uneven balance, though, isn't it? I mean, it's very much a bloc d- dominated by Russia. It's very uneven, and I think members within it, uh, certainly forces in Kazakhstan, certain groups really resent being drafted back into it. And But they see themselves having no choice because they, they've got China on the other side wanting to dominate them, and it's, it's, the members of it are using it as a, as a game for their own survival. I think, I think its roots are fragile. Can I just touch finally on, on, a, on a pet obsession, perhaps, that we have here, commemorating... Uh, uh, centenaries at the moment. We've been doing a lot of that in the last few years. Uh, Russia has a, an extraordinary centenary next year, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917. Uh, how is... The, uh, it, this is going to be quite problematic uh, to, to, to Putin, who doesn't exactly sympathise with the aims of the Bolsheviks. How, how are they going to commemorate it? We're interested to see how they commemorate it. I suspect it'll be rather like how they commemorate it the outbreak of World War One, they'll do it fairly quietly, but they'll have a few exhibitions. But for Putin, the revolution, he presents the revolution as a hideous mistake. He's, he's number one for Putin is no violent regime change, preferably no regime change at all. And so the revolution is not something he wants to talk about very much. Um, but at the same time, he regrets the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, he wants to build up Russia as an empire. So we may see some attention focused on how the revolution brought the birth of this wonderful Soviet Union rather than the revolution itself. I think that's what he'll focus on. He has a certain sympathy with Stalin. He does have sympathy with Stalin because Stalin was responsible for building the Soviet Union as a strong power, winning the war, bringing order to the country, and also building up Russian industry. So he has a lot of sympathy for Stalin. A lot of rewriting of history will go on next year. It will indeed. It'll be interesting to see it happen. (laughs) Thank you very much, Isabel. Thank you. Thanks to Stephen Starr, Derek Scally and Isabel Gorst and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 